Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker. I am an author, a speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I'm passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. Ah, these are some of my all-time favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. Does God have a body? This may seem like a simple question to you, but I'd be curious how many different answers we would get from the listeners of this podcast. When you read the Bible, God is definitely anthropomorphized, whether it is something like Psalm 118.16 that says, the strong right arm of the Lord is raised in triumph, or Nahum chapter 1 talks about the clouds as the dust of the Lord's feet. But then if you grew up Jewish, you know that from a young age, children learn that God does not have a body. Where does that idea come from? Well, this is the topic of conversation today between Dr. Benjamin Sommer, who is the professor of Bible and ancient Semitic languages at the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. He sat down with Dr. Yeshaya Gruber for a roundtable talk to discuss his book published in 2009 that is called The Bodies of God and the World of Ancient Israel. They started their conversation talking about this discrepancy between the anthropomorphic language of the Bible describing God as if he had a body and the Jewish tradition that God does not have a body. Where does the discrepancy come from? Lean in and enjoy the conversation. So you're right, Jewish children learn from a young age that God, the, the God of the Bible, that the Jewish God has no body. You're right that uh, we say in shul um, every Saturday morning, in he doesn't have a body and he is not a body when we sing Yigdal, uh, which summarizes Maimonides' 13 principles. Jewish children learned that, we sing that at shul, but Jewish children didn't always learn that, and we didn't always sing that at shul. In the time of the Talmud, for example, uh, they had, the rabbinic movement had liturgy, they had services that are structured just the way that our services are structured now, but there was no Yigdal. Yigdal hadn't been written yet, and Maimonides hadn't been born yet. And the truth of the matter is that if you look throughout rabbinic literature, in rabbinic literature, they do not object to the idea that God has a Bible and when you, uh, God has a body. Um, and when you go back to the Bible itself, when you go back to the Tanakh, surprisingly enough, pretty much no biblical authors make the claim that God is not embodied. Maybe there's one author in the last part of the book of Isaiah, the author that we call Second Isaiah or Deutero-Isaiah, maybe um, that author makes that claim, that prophet claims that. Uh, that's at least the thesis of Professor Moshe Weinfeld from Hebrew University. Um, I'm not 100% sure that I, I agree with that reading, but it's a very it's at least a plausible reading. But other than that one possible exception, biblical authors do assume that God has a body. And so um, you're right that it's impertinent to object to Rambam, to object to Maimonides, but I'm objecting, you might say, not in my own 
name. Um, I'm objecting in the name of the many, many generations of sages and scholars and scribes who wrote the Bible and who wrote rabbinic literature, uh, which had not yet arrived at that idea. Um, this, I think, is a particularly poignant argument that you're advancing and one that sort of startles people. Um, in your book, you mentioned that there has been a kind of scholarly avoidance of what we might call a pretty glaring issue. If you're right that, you know, there's maybe one possible exception in all of the Tanakh to the idea that God has a body. So what, what has led yeah. to this sort of tendency to minimize or ignore what you call the body issue? Well, I think that, first of all, among Jews, the influence of Maimonides is just enormous. I mean, in Maimonides' own day, he was very controversial because his contemporaries understood that he was a radical, radical Jewish thinker in certain respects, a very traditional Jewish speaker, thinker in other respects, uh, in terms of the, the absolute centrality of halakha and law to Judaism, but theologically a very radical thinker. And um, people objected very, very vociferously to his writings uh, in his day, in the generations right after him. But, you know, within a few centuries, Maimonides had completely won. Maimonides um, really created a sea change in Jewish thinking about God. Maimonides said that if you really believe in monotheism, if you believe that not only that there's one God, but that God is absolutely different from the world and separate from the world which God created, then God can't be physical. God can't be present in space and time. Um, and I think people found that argument ultimately to be convincing. And once having been convinced of that argument, they then applied that thinking backwards, um, which is what Maimonides himself attempts to do basically in the first third of his philosophical ma masterpiece, The Guide of the Perplexed. Um, the first third of the guide is spent trying to convince the audience, the readers, that all those passages in the Bible and also in rabbinic literature that seem to imply or just state or assume that God has a body, you have to read them differently. Now, the fact that he has to spend a third of the guide making that argument shows you know, what a new idea this was, what a radical idea it was. But on the other hand, um, he made it successfully and he convinced people. And so I think Jewish scholars um, just were unable to see the body of God in the scripture because they'd been taught from a young age that it wasn't there. And if you're taught that something isn't there to be seen, even if it's very obvious, it's really hard to see it. And I think something similar happens among the Christian scholars. Some of the thinkers involved are, are a different set of thinkers, and some of them go back further. The idea of that, that, that God doesn't have a body, or at least originally didn't have a body, um, goes back much further in Christianity. It enters into Judaism later than it enters into Christianity. Um, but there, too, uh, there is this idea that um, the, the God of the Hebrew Bible, of Hebrew scriptures, is not embodied, and it's just such a widespread idea that people can't see what's right in front of them. And actually, I, I'm sure that hundreds of years from now, somebody will say that about us. Sure, you know, we're this missing, is a human missing something. Yeah. Yes, yeah. we're missing everyone something has, obvious too. Everyone has blind yeah, spots. I'm sure that I'm missing. Yeah, I've got the same sort of blind spots. It's just the human tendency. There are many ways to try to understand what the ancient writers of Scripture meant when they used the words they used. 
along with what early interpreters of those scriptures meant when they studied the words. As a context person myself, it makes me very happy when Dr. Gruber and Dr. Somer anchor their conversation in the world of the ancient Near East. Starting with context always helps us understand the reference points for people as they grapple with language used to talk about the divine. So where do we go to gain understanding of how the Israelites used such language? Sure. The, I say that the door into understanding the, the thought world of the ancient Israelites, of the biblical authors, the door is especially located in Mesopotamia. And I say that because we actually have a lot more Mesopotamian literature, a lot more Sumerian, Babylonian, and Assyrian literature than we have ancient Israelite literature. It was lost for thousands of years, but it was written down on clay tablets that survived those thousands of years underground quite well, whereas most ancient Israelite literature, um, some of it probably was oral, it might not have been written down, but and what was written down was written down on parchment or on leather or on papyrus, and it didn't survive well. So, you know, this anthology, this, this book, the Tanakh, that we get from ancient Israel, it's not that big of a book. It's not that long. Um, we've got a lot more literature from ancient Mesopotamia, um, not only literature in the sense of poetry and narrative, we also have everyday documents, letters that people sent back and forth, all sorts of records from ancient temples. And so we're able to reconstruct the thought world of ancient Mesopotamia much more confidently than we can reconstruct the thought world of ancient Israel. And when we do so, I think we can come back to the Tanakh, we can come back to Hebrew scripture and see that parts of scripture are making assumptions about what we know. And once we recover those assumptions, we can read them in a new way. So just, I mean, two simple examples I'll give, I'll give that aren't related to the, the issue of divine embodiment. Genesis chapter one, it's a beautiful passage, uh, very stately prose, almost a poetic prose, describing majestically how um, an all-powerful and benign being created a world so that that world would be good. Well-known passage. For one thing, even if you, you decide you want to read the Bible and after a couple of days you give up on that New Year's resol resolution, you've read Genesis one, so everyone knows Genesis one. Um, there's another side of Genesis 1, which is that Genesis 1 is a very polemical, very argumentative, very punchy text. When you go and read Mesopotamian creation stories, and also some stories that are probably related to creation from the ancient Canaanites, um, who are a little further to the West, it becomes clear that Genesis, the authors of Genesis chapter one know these ancient creation myths from ancient Mesopotamia, probably also from Canaan. They know that there's this idea that the God in charge is younger than the universe and came to be in charge of the universe by fighting older gods and goddesses and defeating them, defeating forces of chaos. And it's by doing so by defeating these older deities and these forces of chaos, that that God became the king of the gods and then created the world. Genesis 1 is constantly alluding to those texts and undercutting them. 
using some of the same vocabulary, let's say tanin, that describes the, uh, or tahom, that describe the forces of chaos. But in Genesis 1, these aren't forces of chaos. These are simply things that God created to be good. God created these when God created the world because God wanted good things in the world. By using all of this vocabulary, and there are a lot of other examples, lots of scholars have spoken about this, Genesis 1 is actually undercutting all of those other texts and saying, yeah, yeah, I know you've heard these stories. That's not the way it went down. Let me tell you what really happened. That punchiness, that polemical nature of Genesis 1, you, you would totally miss if you don't read the Mesopotamia and the ancient Near Eastern material against which it's useful to, to read that material. That is, if you don't look at that ancient Near Eastern material, that allows us to recreate the thought world of ancient Israel. So the argument that I make in the book is that in ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Canaan, also ancient Egypt, one of the core differences between a deity and a human being was not that we have bodies and they don't, but that they had multiple bodies and that they could also inhabit certain spaces be physically present in certain spaces, in multiple spaces around the planet Earth, simultaneously, but not permanently. Um, whereas we've got one body, when that one body is kaput, it's over, we're done. Um, but a deity could be present in multiple bodies and could even temporarily become present in an object, in, a, um, in stone or in wood, that is in what we would maybe disparagingly in our culture call an idol, um, what was called very respectfully in ancient Mesopotamian culture, a tsalmu, a tsalmu. A tsalmu was a statue of a god, but not just a statue in the way that we think of statue in, in English. Um, after the, the craftsmen created the statue, priests performed a ceremony or a set of ceremonies on the statue to bring the presence of the god into the statue. And once that ceremony had been performed, the little, the, the pieces of precious metal or stone that were the eyes and that whatever they made the ears out of, they were no longer just precious metal or stone. They could actually see, the ears could actually hear, the nose could actually smell. This is stated quite explicitly in, in some of the texts that describe the ceremony to bring the presence of the God into the Tsalmu. It's very, very clear that the authors of Psalm 115 or 16, I'm forgetting the number there, um, and that Jeremiah and Isaiah were familiar with those texts because they're mocking those texts. Um, but according to these texts, the, the ears of the God, they, they became real ears. I'm, I'm sorry, the ears of the statue became real ears. The eyes became real eyes. And that statue was actually a body of the God, but it wasn't the only body of the God. The God was still up in heaven. Furthermore, there could be multiple statues of the same God in multiple temples, you know, a few miles away or 50 miles away elsewhere in Mesopotamia. So it turns out that a deity had more than one body. Um, and that gave the deity a fluidity and a flexibility that we mortal beings don't have. I, I think for the ancients, it was very hard to imagine that something existed without it being a physical thing. Um, and so they weren't imagining deities, real deities, as being real but non-physical. I think that was just outside their, their, their thought capacity. I think in Greece, there were people who came up with that idea. But in the ancient Near East, they really didn't have that idea yet. 
And so to answer the question, well, in that case, what makes them so different from us? One answer in Mesopotamia might be, well, actually, they weren't that different from us in many respects, emotionally, and um, uh, um, they, they were quite similar to humans, but they were different from us in that they had multiple bodies and they had this fluidity of identity that we don't have. This is a really interesting way to get into the thought process of ancient people. And perhaps this is the key to understanding some peculiar wording in the biblical text. Let's stay with Genesis for a moment, but fast forward to when Jacob is running from his brother Esau. He is traveling north along the spine of the hill country and stops at a place to sleep for the night. He has a dream and sees angels ascending and descending from the heavenly realm. So how does Dr. Somer take the context of Mesopotamia and use it to help us understand this Jacob narrative in a new way? So I I talked about how in Mesopotamia, in the language of the Babylonians and Assyrians, which is known as Akkadian, the language Akkadian, the name for the divine statue that, that came alive, that the presence of the God was literally located in, the name of that statue in Akkadian was Salmu. But among the Canaanites and their neighbors, the Aramaeans, the name for the similar sort of slab of stone that they believe a deity came to inhabit, the name of that was a Beit El. Beit El literally means the house of the God, and they called it that because it came to house the God. When one looks at the story of Jacob at Beit El, at Bethel, as it's uh, usually transliterated in, in English, Um, I I think it becomes clear that the author of that story is using the word Beit El in the same way that their Canaanite and Aramean neighbors were using the word Beit El. Um, If you recall, what happens is Jacob pours oil. When Jacob wakes up in the morning after his dream, uh, where he sees, you know, the stairway to heaven or the the ziggurat that leads to heaven, um, he realizes that this is a place touched by God, and he wants to not just commemorate it, I think he wants to make sure that that connection to God would endure so that his descendants one day would be able to come to this place and experience the real presence of God the way that he had just experienced the real presence of God. So what he does is he takes one of the stones, sort of stands it up so it's kind of vertical, and then he pours oil onto it. Um, and it's useful to remember that to pour oil on an object or a person in ancient Semitic, um, in ancient Semitic ritual is to change its status. I think what Jacob is doing here is he's changing the status of this object ritually he's bringing the presence of God into it. In other words, over in Mesopotamia, there were these very elaborate ceremonies to bring the presence of the God into the Tsalmu. I think that there was a simpler ceremony probably among people further to the West who spoke Canaanite languages, where by pouring oil, by by being Mosheach um, or wine on, on an object, you could change its status. This is the ritual through which Jacob is bringing God into this rock. And now the rock is actually a house of God. At some level, God is present in that standing stone. And that's why he says, he immediately calls it a Beit El. He also calls it a Matseva in the the same verse. Um, This is over in Genesis, I think in Genesis, what, chapter 28. Um, 
he calls it a matseva. Matseva is another of the technical terms used among the Canaanites and the Arameans uh, in the way that the Babylonians and Assyrians use the term Salmu. So I think that the authors of that story are portraying Jacob as having this sort of theology. He, um, he thought that the, the God he worshiped, the, the God who created the world and who chose Abraham, Isaac, and then himself, um, that that God could come to inhabit a stone or multiple places, multiple temples at the same time, while still remaining in heaven. In other words, he, he was imagining the Israelite God as being fluid the way that the, the gods of the Mesopotamians and Canaanites were. The difference is that the people writing the story, I think, really were monotheists. Uh, they didn't believe that other gods had real power, that other gods were significant. They believed that Jacob's God was the creator of the universe uh, and the only God who mattered, which is a kind of early monotheism. Um, so they're not, they don't share all the theology of their Canaanite or Mesopotamian neighbors. They're not really, they're not polytheists, um, but they do believe that the one God had the sort of fluidity that the polytheists thought their gods and goddesses had. With regard to Beit El, why you view it so literally? Let's say if we compare to what you were saying about Genesis 1, um, it could be polemical. It could be a refutation of certain uh, other ideas in the surrounding mm -hmm. Near Eastern culture rather than an adaptation of that. That's a great question because something similar is going on. Just like Genesis chapter one is using terminology that we see in Babylonian creation epics and that we also see in epics regarding the god Baal over among the Canaanites, um, so too these Jacob passages, not only in Genesis, but also in Hosea, which when, when Hosea talks about Jacob, um, they're using terminology that we see, especially really among the Canaanites and Arameans. The difference is that they're using it in the same way. Genesis 1 takes that vocabulary and gives it a new meaning. Tahom and Tanin in Genesis chapter 1, um, what is usually translated as, let's say, Tahom is the deep, the watery deep, and Tanin, um, some sort of sea monsters. These are no longer forces of chaos that fight the forces of order. They're simply something that the Tanin is simply something that God creates. The Tahom is something that God is just hovering above but doesn't have a negative relationship with. So the same or similar terminology is being used, but it's always being emptied of its polytheistic meaning. Um, in Genesis 28, 31, 35, uh, in Hosea, um, these terms are being used, but they're being used in the same way, and they're being used positively, not negatively. The difference is just instead of it being used of a lot of different gods and goddesses, it's only being used of one god. That's a big difference. Monotheism versus polytheism, that's not a, that's not a small thing, but that polemic happens elsewhere in texts like Genesis chapter 1 um, and lots of other places in the book of Hosea. It's not happening in these, in these Jacob passages. There's nothing negative showing up there. They're just using the same terms in, the, in exactly the same way. Monotheism versus polytheism. Yes, that. If you have hung out with the faculty of IBC, you have heard us talk about this subject before. Israel recognized that there were other gods, but their God was the true God. And 
the God of the whole universe, and the only one to worship. But Dr. Sommer has a new and interesting way of thinking about this. You will need to listen to the whole roundtable talk for that bit of information. A quick link to that conversation is in the episode notes of this show. Conversations like this are fairly common here at IBC, whether in a wide variety of roundtable talks with scholars from around the world, or perhaps in our many courses. If you've not yet connected with Israel Bible Center, consider joining our growing international group of students. From the comfort of your own home and at your own pace, you can take classes and within a year earn a certificate in Jewish context and culture. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for all of the editing, the mixing, and adding in all the good music. And thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related.